Hey there, I'm Matt Walker, the host of the Choir Director Corner podcast. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I'm so excited you are here. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about a one-of-a-kind online resource for choir directors, and it's called the Choir Director Corner Community Membership. This membership was designed to give you the training, the resources, the support, and the community you need to be successful in your teaching. Inside the membership, you'll find online courses, which will help you polish your current skills, as well as learn some new strategies and techniques, a PDF resource library with over 50 PDFs and Google Docs that you can use in your daily teaching and workflows, monthly collaboration calls where you can ask questions, get feedback, and collaborate with choir directors just like you, and access to our recommended repertoire videos and repertoire lists. There's even a private Facebook group which gives you another place online to collaborate with other choir directors and ask questions. Being a choir director doesn't have to be a DIY endeavor. It's so much better when it's done together. So head on over to choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership and join us in the Choir Director Corner community membership. Again, that's choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership. All right, on with today's episode. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Choir Director Corner Podcast. My name is Matt Walker. I am your host. Thanks so much for stopping by and joining me for today's episode. And yes, winter is coming, my friends. But I'm not talking about the Game of Thrones. Today, I'm talking about the Game of Tones. Very excited to share with you in today's episode of the podcast, my conversation with Zach Derland. Zach serves as the Director of Choral Activities at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And not only is he a fantastic teacher, but also a tremendous singer in his own right. And one of the things that he's very passionate about in his teaching is teaching healthy vocal technique in fun and creative ways. And he's done this presentation called Game of Tones. I've seen him do it multiple times now. And it is such a wonderful discussion of vocal technique because he is so creative and so engaging in how he presents the different aspects of vocal technique. He explains things in a very clear and simple way. And he's got a lot of strategies and rehearsal techniques that you can use to not only help your singers build healthy vocal technique, but these are also things then that you can do to influence the ensemble sound in a positive way. And, you know, he's done a number of collaborations with his collegiate voice faculty colleagues. And when a collegiate voice teacher comes into your rehearsal and says, I really like that. I'm going to use that in my voice studio. You know that you're doing something right. So very excited to share my conversation here today with you with Zach. Let's get right into it. Here we go. Well, I'm very excited to have Zach Durlam on the podcast today. Welcome, Zach. Thank you so much for joining me and hanging out with me today. 
Thanks, Matt. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, very excited to have you here. Before we dive into your presentation on the Game of Tones, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Sure. Well, I grew up an Iowa boy, central Iowa, from Jefferson, Iowa, originally, and uh, went to Luther College for my undergrad and taught high school in Iowa for nine, 12 years, excuse me. Last nine of them were in Iowa City. And during that time, Matt student taught with me for one of the semesters. Yeah. And after doing 12 years there, went to Michigan for a couple of years to finish my doctorate at Michigan State, did my master's at University of Iowa. And then uh, taught out in California for four years in Fresno at a small college out there. And then have been the past, oh goodness, when did we move back here? 2014. So the past eight years have been at UW-Milwaukee, been the director of choral activities there. Terrific. Yes. And Zach is one of the most kind and humble and also smartest people that I know, (laughs) famously double majored in music ed and math at least. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And yes, I was very lucky to uh, get to student teach and learn from Zach many, many years ago. And uh, so, yeah, so it's great to be visiting again here with you today. So in your experiences growing up and being involved in music ensembles, at what point did you start thinking about being a choir director? Was that something that you thought of early on or is it something that kind of came up as you progressed through all of your different musical experiences? Yeah, I I guess I hadn't really thought of that until I was in high school, later high school, really. You know, I had this similar experience to you where I was in a summer performing group, the State Fair Singers and Jazz Band or Celebration Iowa later Mm -hmm. came to be known. So, you know, that experience brought me together. I, I grew up in a small school and I, and I had a great experience in that, that little school, but finding a community of people who were really passionate about music from around the state and just seeing some exceptional directors at work started to make me think, oh, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is something I'd, I'd like to do. And uh, I kind of went back and forth between that. I was really interested in math and science too. And, and when it came time to choose college, I wrestled with a little bit and ultimately decided that I think I really wanted to be a teacher. I'd done some cadet teaching, we called it in my high school, where you go in and help with classes and stuff like that. And it really ignited a fire under me for for teaching in general. And and I love music, so it seemed like a good fit. Yeah, I think you chose the right path. It's worked out okay <laughs> for you. Yeah. I remember, by the way, in that, speaking of that, State Fair Singers and Jazz Band, it was a great experience for me. And then I was on staff for a few years. And I remember that was the first time I met a ninth grade Matt Walker, who was at audition. Oh uh, uh, you auditioned, I think, the first time in your ninth grade year. And you were just this little tiny guy and just, oh, it was the yep. sweetest thing. I remember meeting you there. It was awesome. And I think you wound up yep. doing that group then a little bit later in your high school your career. Yeah. 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 It took me three tries, I think, to audition for that ensemble. And uh, I just remember good old uh, Dr. Dennis Darling, the, the director of the ensemble. The first summer, he's just like, oh, not quite yet. And then the second summer came back and "Ah, not quite yet. And the third summer was finally, all right, we think you're ready. Yeah. You need to go take some dance classes. (laughs) I had a similar issue, I think, when I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, though, hearing that that ninth grade year, you were already a great singer then. You had such a sweet sound. It was amazing. Yeah. But you were very young. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. I was very young. Probably could still sing soprano at that yep. time yep. when you, you first were. you first heard me. So yeah, yeah. Uh, great experiences though. Yeah, I learned so much through uh, that ensemble. So yeah. and it, really, that was the ensemble that uh, talking about where we got the idea of being a choir director. That was yeah. really the first experience that uh that kind of planted the seed for me so yeah well you are amongst all your other things you got going on this summer you're giving a couple of presentations at uh, mm-hmm. iowa choral directors symposium and so one of those is called the game of tones mm-hmm. so a little takeoff on the the game of thrones series yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this presentation are you going to come out in like full battle gear uh, yeah. like, <laughs> that'd be <laughs> awesome uh i should really work on that yeah a little or like a john snow outfit or something but no 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 it's just a catchy <laughs> title i have been known to occasionally costume for my presentations i had an abraham lincoln hat for one of them but i don't have any special costume for this you know this was really <laughs> born of a couple of different things And part of this is a gift from Weston Noble to me in his way of teaching that he really emphasized the affective and the kinesthetic domains. He lived a lot in the affective domain as he taught. And getting out and teaching, and as I continue to grow in my career, I've just found the the power of using imagination as well as sort of kinesthetic techniques in teaching, how effective that can be in both engaging singers and in delivering content. And so it's sort of the marriage of that, which both of my presentations at ICDA sort of dwell in that. How do we engage singers' imaginations and get into this sort of spirit of play to accomplish musical or technical tasks? And then my interest in in vocal tones. So when I was out in California... um, I had some experience teaching voice and, and and doing some other things. And I, and I decided to give a presentation out there just on some tips and tricks for working with tone. And I gave one at like a regional conference and then I gave one at a state conference. And then when I moved to, to Wisconsin, I had the opportunity to work with some just fantastic voice faculty at UW-Milwaukee, where I just learned even more and I continue to grow my own knowledge about how the voice works and continue to refine and develop my own strategies for working with choirs. So then back in, oh, I think it was 2017 or so, about five years ago, I sort of repackaged all of that into this into this Game of Tones uh, presentation. And I think that sometimes getting selected for conferences is 50% about having a relevant topic and packaging it right, and 50% about having a catchy title. So I decided <laughs> I needed to find something clever and relevant. And of course, at that time, Game of Thrones was big. And I have to admit, I've only ever seen one episode of Game of Thrones, though I've read all of the novels that (laughs) exist so far. I hadn't actually seen it much, but I decided that would capture people's attention. And it, it highlights the way that working on it can be really full of sort of play and fun and humor and not just sort of pedantic content delivery, that it can really be kind of a game and an engaging process. You know, I kind of developed that. And then since that, I've tweaked it and I've had the opportunity to present it. This will be the 10th time I've presented it at a conference, which is really, really cool. You know, normally you develop these presentations and you present them once or twice. And this one, for whatever reason, really caught on. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you have me beat. I've seen zero episodes of Game of Thrones. (laughs) You've seen more than I have. Having seen you do this presentation before, you know, I love 
the approach that you have where, like you said, it's a creative approach. It engages not just the brain, but the body. You know, like you say, it has a, a spirit of play in it, which mm-hmm. I think is just wonderful. I talk with a lot of choir directors that they say they try to get their singers to experiment with the voice and try different things. You know, they say, well, my singers are too hesitant. They don't want to sound silly or they don't want to make a mistake and have people laugh at them. And so they're like, I just don't know if my singers would even venture to try some of these things or really be willing to explore their voices or experiment in that way. Are there some ways that you found to combat this or maybe some suggestions that you would have? Well, I would have a couple. I mean, first of all, you know, you've got to know your students and know your singers and uh, you have to set up obviously a, a space in which they feel safe taking some risks. But nonetheless, you know, I've tried a lot of these techniques when I've gone out and done festivals and honor choirs and, and even sort of y'all come sorts of festivals where the, anyone and everyone can be there and the students don't know each other, where you'd think some of the students would be somewhat risk averse. And I, I found them to be pretty successful. And I think there's a few things that that go into getting the students to lower their barriers. So one first one is, well, I'll tell you a little story. Back when I was teaching high school, I remember my show choir, we did something on the public access TV. Like we did a show and they were going to air it. And then as part of that, they decided to interview some of the students, which is, oh, this is great. And and so one of them questions they asked the students, they said, well, you know, tell us about your director or whatever. And and uh, the quote was, well, Mr. Durham is not afraid to make a fool out of himself. That was the quote. And they meant it in a total positive way. But I was like, wow, great. Thanks. Uh, that was really nice. But the whole thing is that the students knew that I was never asking them to do anything that I wouldn't go even further with. I would look kind of silly and stupid and let them laugh at me and laugh at myself. And that sometimes will get them to lower their guard down because even if they only go halfway to what I do, they're still engaging in that. And I always can be the one that people are sort of rolling their eyes or laughing at a little bit to take the focus off of the students feeling like they're sticking out so much. I think that's one thing. Another thing is that the voice is such a, like a, a personal thing, you know, like if you're playing clarinet or trumpet and like it squeaks or something happens and, you know, you pull it away from your mouth and you look at that instrument (laughs) funny, like, Oh, there's, you know, you can always blame it on the instrument, but when, when sounds come out of you that you don't relish and treasure, that's a part of your body. So there's no, nothing else to blame it on. And your voice is such an intense, intensely personal part of who you are that I think students are sometimes more hesitant to experiment with that than they might be with an instrument. And so sometimes taking it out of the realm of even singing and just making some sounds initially. Like if sometimes I'll have, and we'll talk about this perhaps a little bit later, but I might have students sing something on funny syllables. Like maybe we'll sing it on meow, 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 meow. And I'll have them try to be different kind of cats. And and maybe they're they sort of tentative to do that at first. So I'll say, you know, everybody just say, say meow. Now say meow, now say meow, right? And we'll just all say it different ways and doing it collectively with everyone doing it and me sort of shouting and getting them hyped up energy-wise so that they know there's cover 
right? They know that their voice isn't going to stick out above everyone else's and there's a trust that everyone's going to do it. And then moving from that to singing, building that trust that everyone's going to do it. So I'm not going to sound silly here somehow. I think those are, are valuable techniques in building these things. And then just humor, right? So anytime we sort of get to laughing that naturally breaks down these inhibitions that we have and creates a more comfortable environment. And I mean, laughing together, laughing at the silliness or laughing at me, right. But not necessarily laughing at each other, right. But just laughing to creating silly ideas and stories. I think those are valuable techniques. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Building that sense of trust, but yeah, being able to have a sense of humor about, all of it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. So let's dive into some of the different topics in the game of tones. And the first area that you talk about is breath support. And so I have found with young singers, this is really a challenging topic to engage with them. So do you have suggestions for maybe some imagery or some techniques that you've used with your singers that have been successful when it comes to breath support? Yeah. I mean, I'll back up first and just say, I don't feel like I truly understood what breath support was until I was at some point in my 30s. I was throwing around this term with sort of a vague understanding of the physiological realities of what that term meant the whole time I was teaching high school. And I say that not to shame anyone who might find themselves in the same place, but rather to say, I think that as much as we talk about breath support and as integral as it is to everything that we do, it's a very slippery and tricky concept to truly understand. And when I do these presentations, I'll often ask folks like, Can someone just explain to me what is breath support? And no shame here, right, if you can't. And what I'll get is a lot of people sort of talking around the idea of breath support without being able to really narrow it down. And the reason for that is the definition is really complicated and complex. It's not simple. The best definition I've I've ever heard is this Melissa Maldi, who's a well-known voice pedagogue. She says, support in singing is the act of maintaining dynamic equilibrium between the expiratory breath flow and the resistance to that breath flow. And for me, that is exactly what it is. But that is a really hard sentence to unpack and understand, right? (laughs) What does that even mean? And so I think the first thing that we have to do as directors is understand what that even looks like and feels like so that we can help translate that for our singers. And it's this displacement of muscular tension from the neck down into, you know, the abdominal and the the back area to to create this pressure that we need in order to power the, the motion of air through the vocal folds. Right. But what does it feel like? Well, it feels like those muscles are contracting to help the air move out. while at the same time, there's resistance to that. And that creates this idea of support. It's not a clenching of the muscles, which is kind of what I thought when I was singing in high school choir. And right, we would tap our bellies and talk about the diaphragm, which, of course, your diaphragm is not on your belly, but, you know, and talk about breath support. (laughs) And I would think that it was somehow this clenching. And that's not exactly what it is. And so what I've tried to do is create images that can get that feeling of both the muscles contracting, muscles of the abdomen particularly contracting and helping move that airflow out, while at the same time being resisted a little bit. And so a couple of images that I've come up with are, one, getting singers to think of something that 
that visualizes the air moving down at the same time as it's actually moving up and out because that creates this feeling of resistance. So one of the images I'll use is like a hovercraft. I'll have them imagine that they have little hovercraft jets in their hands. And then I'll have them point their hands at the floor, you know, and sing something from uh, Hallelujah Chorus, like, for the Lord God. And on God, you know, will you turn on those hovercraft jets and imagine your air is going down at the same time as it's going out? God omnipotent reigneth. And sometimes that will help them to feel this sense of, this sort of balanced expiratory and inspiratory, you know, I mean, you go back to that definition, right? So that's one way. Another way I've found that's really successful that I find a lot of people have, have borrowed now and used is this, imagine you're standing in like a waist deep pool of water and you've got a beach ball and you're going to put your hands in that beach ball and you're going to push it underwater. And so I'll have them maybe try it different ways. Like imagine you're pushing through wet cement and it's really resisting you. Okay. Now imagine that it's just a stream of air and it moves really easily. Okay. Okay, now put it on water and push it down. And can you imagine how it will resist you? And I'm having them use their hands at, at that sort of gut level down there in the same place where they'll feel that same resistance within those muscles. Okay, now let's sing an exercise like, I know, I know, I know, and push that, that uh, beach ball underwater and feel a little of that resistance there. With my collegiate singers, sometimes I'll flip that ball inside out. I'll imagine that they're encased in the ball, right, their midsection, and I'll have them, or like a red playground ball, those kind that we always used to play kickball with in elementary school, uh-huh. and that they're encased yep. in a large one of those and have them put their hands on the sort of lower part of that ball and push out and down as they sing up. And that that more directly mimics the action of what we're trying to feel there. As the ball pulls in and contracts and we're resisting and pushing out, it helps us to get this feeling of support or what voice teachers like to call appoggio because because in the voice world we like to have a fancy italian word for everything right but appoggio <laughs> is really just this idea of support it means to lean it's what you know bel canto trained singers say it feels this idea of for, support feels like but i'll find that even our collegiate voice majors it'll sometimes be into their couple of semesters in before their light bulb finally goes on and they're like Oh, I feel it now, right? It takes some time, but sometimes these images can help because the these parts of the body aren't visible from the inside out. Uh, these sensations, these using your imagination can help you to sort of locate these sensations. Yeah, and I would agree with what you said during my undergraduate study. I don't think I really, really understood how it was supposed to feel and how it was supposed to work. And it was probably, Mm -hmm. you know, not until my my graduate work in voice that I really started to get the hang of it. But yeah, it's something that singers constantly and consistently are always having to work on. But those are wonderful ideas and wonderful, wonderful images. So, Going then from breath support into our next aspect of tone that you talk about is focus. And so dealing with focus in the sound is the object to help the singer to find yeah. sort of that, yeah. that you know, I mean, there's or that ring in the sound. Focus is a, a little bit of a slippery concept. I think it's one that we can all identify orally, right? You know, here's a tone with focus. Here's an unfocused tone. But right, getting at sort of the the mechanisms behind what causes tone to be focused and unfocused is, is 
trickier. And, you know, you have to be sensitive when you're working on this to the actual mechanics of the voices of your singers. So if you're working with a group of sixth grade sopranos and altos, you're going to have a different concept of what you would expect from focus out of those human beings who are in the midst of their voice change and whose vocal folds might still have a vocal chink. There might They might not be quite grown together and lining up. So there's going to be some natural airiness that's going to come out that you don't want to try to force them to use muscular action to fight against, right? So with them, it's just more getting an efficient use of air. Whereas, you know, once those mm-hmm. soprano and alto voices are getting towards, say, ninth grade, most of them are fully through their voice change at that point. And you can start to work a little bit more on these issues of proper adduction of the vocal folds. So not to just throw around a lot of terms. And a lot of people will know these terms and some people won't. And again, there's absolutely no shame. I mean, some of these terms, I feel like I didn't really start to understand what they meant or start using them until maybe I already was in my doctoral program, you know? So like nobody should feel bad if they're not familiar with these terms, but what causes a lot of lack of focus is either a a lack of proper adduction of the vocal folds, which just means that the vocal folds aren't properly touching, right? There's extra gaps where air escapes or just an inefficient use of air in an inefficient sort of, it's still related to adduction, right? But just allowing extra air to escape without being converted into tone. So some exercises I found to work on that are just, First of all, getting singers to be aware that they actually have the power to control adduction within their vocal folds. I don't usually try to address this directly like, no, squeeze your vocal folds shut, right? That doesn't really do anything. And that's not really what we want them to do, right? But there's two ways I I get at it. So one is to actually do have them mimic the action of the vocal folds, but try it all different ways to make them aware that they, they can produce different kinds of vocal onsets that end up resulting in different kinds of tones. So I'll have them hold their hands out in front of them, mimicking like a magnified version of the vocal folds, you know, with their pointer fingers touching and then rotating apart and together again. And, or maybe we'll just have the hands be entirely separate and we'll, we'll, we'll sing like e, 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 e. And first I'll have them start with their hands apart and go, hey, 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 and bring them together after they, so they start the air first. Then, then they close the tone around the air. Then I'll have them start with them pressed together with a lot of pressure and explode them open, what we would call a glottal attack. And we'll sing e, 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 e. Then we'll have them touch just as the tone starts. E, 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 with a balanced onset, right? Now, none of those is the right way to start tone, right? We might want to start with that breathy onset if we're singing some kind of particular type of pop music, right? Where we might want to go, ah, right? We might want to start with a glottal when we're trying to really articulate, you know, ah, 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 and we might want to start with a balanced onset at other times. But it's, it's not so much about teaching them what's right and wrong, but showing them that they actually have the capacity to be able to produce different kinds of sound and control that adduction in their voice. And I'm, I'm probably not using the all of this vocabulary right away. I connect it over time, right? But we just say, all right, everyone, start with the hands apart and go, hey, hey, okay, now do E, e, now do e, 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 right? And then we can bring that back within, you know, as we're working on repertoire or in other vocal exercises to help them figure that out. Another one is, is I'll just have them intentionally, again, sing breathy, 
bring it to a focused sound, and then breathy again. And I'll have them do something physically with this, like maybe start with their pointer fingers spread apart and go like, and then bring them together and then spread them apart again, right? Again, just teaching them that they actually have some physical control over how much or how little breathiness is in that sound. So I found those to be really useful exercises. And then particularly with younger soprano alto voices, allowing them to sing sort of ugly or whiny sometimes like wee, 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 just making these whiny sounds that have more focus. Sometimes I've found that people will get hyper-focused on the concepts of space, which is the next one on the handout, right? And getting these tall vowels and combating these Midwestern sounds all the time. And they'll get these really tall sounds out of their choirs, but they will be unfocused, particularly in the soprano alto voices. And we'll get a lot of, oh, oh, and I just, I throw that out the window and I say, your, your choral director might hate this, but we're just going to, we're going to sing ugly and that's okay. And we find that focus and then gradually we refine it and add the space in. I find it's easier to add space to a focus tone than to add focus to a spacious sound. Mm. Yeah. And as you're talking through that and talking about focus, the one word that I heard you mention was that word onset. And Mm -hmm. so it's getting our singers to explore the different ranges of onset. Like you said, they have a much wider palette to work Mm -hmm. from than really what they recognize. So, well, you mentioned another aspect of tone that really needs some exploration from our singers, and that's vocal space and resonance. So what are some ways that we can have our singers explore these concepts and, again, sort of expand their palette that they're working from? I feel like, in general, choral folks have a better grasp on this idea of space. But nonetheless, finding ways to do it without building bad habits in, I think, is really important. So I remember being in a choir at one point where the director wanted more taller vowels. Let's just call it taller vowels. And so we all took, you know, three fingers and stuck them in our mouth so that we kept our jaw dropped, right? But that created a lot of, it created a really weird jaw position and a lot of excessive tension in the sound. And we, yeah, we got tall vowels, but at what cost, I wonder? We picked up a lot of bad habits in the process and, you know, working with young singers, particularly young baritones, I'll find sometimes when we work on the concept of space, they'll get it, but they'll get this sort of muffled, swallowed sound. So, so how do you work on space without picking up bad habits in the process? Well, you know, there's the first and most basic way, which is just going after this idea of a horizontal shape versus a vertical shape. So having them hold their hands in front of their face and sing it and mimic that space that their hand is making as they sing and then turn their hand or vertical and mimic that space, right? That's the most basic thing that you can do or placing your hands on the side of your face. I like that one, either with the backs of the hands or the fronts of the hands and letting that jaw relax and just feeling the sense of space. I like that because it, it doesn't sort of put the jaw in this really weird position and it gets them to relax and open up a little bit more. So, you know, those are some basic ones. I've seen other really effective ones that I, I'm sometimes a little bit more careful about using these, but they can be effective, like the Oreo cookie, right? Sticking the Oreo sideways in your mouth and then sticking it in the tall way, right? Twisting it the other way. Again, you have to be careful about them not jutting their jaw forward as they do that or pulling the jaw back or, or doing weird things. But those can be a great way to sort of get the general idea of 
what is this space thing that we're talking about? I guess there are different things that go into space. A lot of times we focus a lot on the jaw, but I feel that focusing on the front of the mouth is less effective than focusing on the interior and the back of the mouth and what's happening there. So we all know that you know, having a spacious sound involves also singing with the sensation of a raised soft palate. The soft palate just being this soft roof of the mouth. And it's essentially the valve that controls whether or not air can flow through the nose or not. And when the soft palate is in this slightly raised position and dome position, it gives a lot of room for the sound to resonate inside the mouth and restricts the amount of sound that heads through the nose, creating the nasal sound. So, Different ways to do that. Imagining your mouth as a cathedral, even just plugging the nose and intentionally singing into the nose like an operator, you know, singing and then trying to not sound like an operator. Right. So that you can feel that difference. And the, and the thing that's making the difference is, is the position of the soft palate. But for me, the, the trickiest part about space and the one that I think contributes the most to the spacious sound is what, I, what we call pharyngeal space. So again, just a little brief primer of, of vocabulary. So we have the larynx. I think everyone understands the larynx and the voice box. And then there's what we call the pharynx, which is that space from the top of the larynx through the basically the bottom of the soft palate there. Essentially, it's the throat the, the throat and the back of the mouth. And we call that the pharynx. And there's, you know, the oropharynx and the nasopharynx and it gets broken down. But essentially that space there and pharyngeal space just means creating a little bit more room back there for the sound to resonate. And in more classical singing, for a lot of the choral pieces we do, we want a lot of pharyngeal space and we want the larynx to be in a slightly lowered and relaxed position. I don't think I've ever told my singers now sing that again, but lower your larynx, right? Because that just, it seems to create all sorts of bad habits and they depress the, they sort of force it down and we get this sound, but we really do want that larynx to be in a relaxed and lowered position for typical bel canto classical type singing. And so getting ways to get at that, my colleague, uh, Tanya Cruz, calls the larynx Larry. And so she'll, she'll say, just let Larry hang out there. Just let Larry, and I'll, I'll say, let, let Larry swing in a hammock, you know, or something like that. And, and that's all really useful. But having them find, how can they find this sense of a slightly lower laryngeal position without sort of pulling it or forcing it down? And so images that I've used are to imagine that their voice is like a house, so I'll have them sit, just stand on the, it's a single story house and just stand and sing out the front door. So maybe to use Alma del Corre again, maybe we'll just sing Alma del Corre. Okay, now imagine that you just added a basement onto that house. Okay, open the door to the basement and sing it again. Alma, and oftentimes adding something that creates the idea of a physical space below helps for the larynx to naturally lower. I, for whatever reason, I've found that imagination helps that to happen. And sometimes then they'll sing, and I'll say, okay, no, keep the basement on the house, but don't go down into the basement. Now stay on the main floor. Now go in the basement. Now stay on the main floor. Okay, now as we go up high here, keep the basement door open, but let your sound go out your chimney. Now front door. Right. It, it explores different ways of shaping that by simply shaping the house in the direction that the sound is going. 
Another one that I've used, and this one the voice teachers really like at my school because it, it helps to connect to the breath, is imagining that the sound is a river coming out of you. So the river is kind of your breath. And then we can have different depths and widths and turbulences of river, right? So we can sing it with a wide, shallow river, Alma. We can sing it with a deep, narrow river, Alma. They can sing it swallowed by going underwater, Alma. We can have a deep river but stay on top of the water, Alma. And a lot of those things will help them to get this idea of this slightly lower laryngeal position and pharyngeal space that we want in singing. And, and I need to qualify this by saying a lowered, slightly lower laryngeal position is not a universal good in singing, right? It is specific to a particular type of tone that we want to produce. If we're singing contemporary musical theater, we probably don't want that same kind of a laryngeal position, right? I probably don't want to sing, gotta find my corner, or waving through a window, right? There, the laryngeal position is going to be slightly higher with a little bit less pharyngeal space and more open at the front of the mouth. Waving through a window, gotta find my, gotta find my, right? So there are different ways of producing and neither one is superior to the other. But I find that students sometimes find it easier to find that higher laryngeal position sound, and they also layer a lot of tension into it that we don't want, simply because they're more familiar with that that style from their past a lot of times. So. Yeah, it's a matter of doing that, but doing it in a way we're minimizing the amount of tension that's involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So... Now that we've talked about sort of the focus and we've talked about the vocal space, that leads us into our next aspect, which is chiaroscuro. And for me, it's always trying to get that balance. Like often I'll get a sound from my singers where they've opened up that space. But like you said, you know, that that space is, as you mentioned, like going through the basement. So it's a very woofy oh. sound. Yeah. Or you're getting something where it's very bright. The sound is, you know, like you said, coming out the second story windows, but they've sort of abandoned that space to sort of balance that out. So yeah. what are some ways that we can sort of work towards helping our singers achieve that balance? Yeah. So – I mean, so chiaroscuro, of course, is just like you mentioned, you know, it, it's the idea of sort of intermixing this focus and space. And for me, the first thing I have to do is get them to understand that those are two independent qualities that they can control. So one way that I'll do it is I'll actually have them imagine that they have a treble dial and a bass dial in their sound or a treble slider and a bass slider. Right. And we'll, we can sing with our treble slider up on 10 and our bass slider down on zero. Right. We can go. Oh, let's see. You got to think of some other than Alma Del Corey. How about Carl Mia Ben? So we can sing Carl Mia Ben. We can sing it with our bass dial all the way up on 10 and our treble dial down on zero. Carl Mia Ben. We can sing them both with them both all the way up. Carl Mia Ben. Both all the way down. Right. So they can be controlled independently. And sometimes I'll have them do that. And I'll actually put my hands up and be like, okay, my right hand is your treble dial. My left hand is your bass dial. Or, or I'll even just call them your chiaro and your oscuro dial. And then I'll have them sing an exercise like. And as we do it, I'll move my hands slowly like I'll move my right hand up so that the treble dial increases in my left hand down and then I'll bring my left hand and it's kind of a fun exercise like they start with them both up on the top 
I gradually lower my left hand. Then I bring my left hand up and my right hand down. Then I bring them both back up. Again, it gets them used to this idea that they can control the amount of focus and the amount of space and that it's not a linear thing. Like they don't either have focus or space, but they can control both aspects of that sound. And I've done a ton of variations on that just because I get bored of using my same techniques sometimes over and over again. (laughs) So another one is to have them imagine that their voice is hooked up to speakers, send it out of the, the woofers, right? Then send it just out of the tweeters, then send it out of all the speakers, you can even have them place the speakers in their body, place woofers in their rib cage, place tweeters in their forehead or their cheekbones, right? And, and, and so having them play with where the sound is coming out of, first of all, they get a big kick out of it usually. And, and second, <laughs> it really does help. And then we can bring these images back when we're in the middle of a piece, right? Like, oh, oh, sing that phrase again, but this time, can you move your bass dial up two notches again? And, you know, and they they get it right away. It's something that can immediately connect to the repertoire that you're doing and, or sing that again, but but some of you shut off your woofers when you did that or, or baritones, your sound is all going out your woofers right now. Can you send some back out your tweeters? And all of those, I think, can be really effective techniques in in helping them to understand both of these concepts in balance. Yeah, I I love the image of the dials, the stereo dials. We had a a stereo old record player growing up and I remember just the radio would be playing and I would just kind of go and play with the dials just to see what it would do to the sound. It's essentially, yeah, what you're having your your singers do. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that we have to worry about when it comes to tone, I think particularly in the Midwest, because there's all sorts of variations, is vowel shapes. So what are some strategies that you have found helpful to encourage more, more uniform vowel sounds in singers? Sure. One of the things that I like to do with, with chiaroscuro, but with vowels in particular, is develop kinesthetic techniques to use with the different vowels. So depending on what the issue is, I might change the technique depending on which singers I'm working with. So if I'm working with singers that tend to sing over dark, for E, I might have them take their, you know, pointer finger up by their forehead and make a little spinny circle pointing forward. If they tend to be over bright or spread, then we might bring up our narrow goalpost hands above our head and connect that to the idea of keeping this E between the goalposts. Right. So I try to develop, I try to talk about the individual vowels and then develop these individual kinesthetic things that we use. Let's see, where, how do I want to get at this? <laughs> One of the things sometimes I'll talk about with singers is I'll draw this, essentially this V on the board. Right. And um, it mimics the vowel chart, right. That you see sometimes where they show all the different vowel places. I just do a V it's sort of simplified. And then I'll write an I, you know, the E vowel sort of along the top of the left side of the V and then the A vowel midway down. And then the A's down at the point of the V and then an O halfway up and then an O. And then later we can add like add in I and add in E and add in like all and add in U and even ah, different places on there. And we'll talk about that left side and I'll have them say e like that. And I'll make them do that a couple of times and say, what is changing inside your mouth? 
right there. What is changing physiologically to change from the E to the A and back again? And eventually they'll understand that it's the tongue movement. So I'll say, okay, let's call these ones on this side of the V. Let's call these tongue vowels. Okay. Now everyone do, oh, what's changing? And they'll identify the lips. Okay. Let's call these lip vowels, right? And so one of the things that we can do is sometimes on the lip vowels, like O and O, the tongue gets engaged in a way that it shouldn't. We now, you and I know that O does involve quite a bit of tongue movement, yeah. But but O, I'll have them say O, 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 O. Can you feel the difference between those two? All right, let's retain that second one and pay attention to what your tongue and your lips are doing. So first of all, just identifying the primary parts of the body that are responsible for forming those vowels and making sure that we don't engage the tongue too much in the U vowel, right? And that when we have an, uh, a tongue vowel, that we that we keep the lips from spreading a more horizontal. E, E, can we keep just the tiniest bit of lip in that tongue vowel? E, E, yeah. So sometimes that can be helpful. The other thing is, talking about those specific qualities of the different vowels. So I talked about E being between the goalposts. A, I find to be one of the most difficult vowels for, for singers. I know if you ever talk to Joe Miller, he'll say, uh, he'll say, ah, is the most difficult vowel. And I don't necessarily dispute that. But A, I find is a difficult one to clean up and get uniform because either they'll sing A or they'll sing uh, and of course, neither of those is the vowel that we want. We want A. <laughs> so I describe A as being like a unicorn. And this is just another way of getting it chiaroscuro. I'll tell them, okay, now sing it like a scrawny pony with a big old taped on horn. A. And sing that right out the horn. Okay, now sing it like a big fat tubby horse. Uh, okay, now can we sing it like a majestic unicorn? It's got the big horse body, but the pointy horn. And then our, our physical action for that might be the blade hands and one going up out of the forehead and over the head like a horn and the other coming down at the same time into the body like the big body, right? And, and we'll do that when we sing an A. And an ah, of course, I find that the ah, we need to really make sure that we're raising the soft palate, but also keeping the sense of lower space. So I use a sort of a domed hand moving up and one moving down at the same time. Ah, oh, I'll just sort of shape my hands like a giant O oh, moving out in front of me. Oh, and then ooh, oftentimes gets caught. Either it engages the front part of the tongue uh, or ooh, it gets swallowed and caught. And so I'll have them imagine that they're grabbing the ooh like a piece of spaghetti and pulling it out of their mouth. Ooh, or even just point at their mouth and hit their finger with the ooh, ooh, which are ways to keep it projecting. After that, one of the things I think that we sometimes don't remember to do as choral directors is actually spend time vocalizing on the non-primary vowels. So most of us do lots of warm-ups on <laughs> a, a, e, o, u, but I try to make sure that my warm-ups incorporate i and a and u and uh vowels as well so that we get, those are often trickier ones. Singing an a or an uh beautifully is one of the most difficult things that we do. And so we'll do the a ah, and we'll sing it with sort of splatty a ah, versus maybe an a ah that we purchased at Jared. Right? Um, would you buy that? Ad, Jared? <laughs> ah, right now, buy it from the discount bin at the Mega Mart. Ah, 
Ah, so an expensive <laughs> ah versus a cheap ah. Ah, right? And the same thing with ah. Uh. So all those techniques can work to try to refine the individual vowels. By the way, that expensive Jared thing works well with the er sound as well. I love it. Yeah. I just love your use of imagery. And again, it's just incorporating this sense of experimentation and play and everybody's just going to try it. And yep, it's going to sound silly, but that's okay because we're, yeah. we're all yep. doing it and just having fun with it. I love it. Yeah. So our last aspect of tone then that you're getting into is talking about tone, weight, and color. And you point out in your presentation that both of these have a lot of influence or can have a lot of influence on intonation and blend in the ensemble. So Mm -hmm. what are a couple of exercises or strategies that you've used that can help singers to still encourage and maintain sort of that individuality to the sound, but then also when you're listening to the ensemble as a whole can really help us work on intonation and blend? Sure. Playing with a weight in the tone is something I started doing a lot more when I started teaching college. I guess when I was teaching high school, I found that I was just doing a lot more of building voices, helping students just sing and just produce good tone. When I got to the collegiate level, I have a a large number of students that are taking private voice lessons that have already spent a great deal of time building tone. And it becomes a little bit more about managing how those voices function uh, within the choir and the kinds of tones they're producing and the way that they interact with each other than it does about just strictly building tone. So one of the exercises I came up to to play with weight in the sound is we would do this exercise that starts with a rest and it goes rest. Pa, 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 ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve. And I'm sure everyone's done some variation of that sort of pattern of notes, right? What I started having them do was juggle things. And I often use fruit uh, for whatever reason because <laughs> I, it's, it's fun, right? And so I'll have them start by juggling apples. Pa, 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 pa. And then we'll either spin it. We'll hold our finger as far away from us as we can and spin the apple on a globetrotter style. Ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve. Or we'll take the finger and point it out like an arrow as it as it goes through the apple. Pa, 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 pa. We juggle, then we arrow. Ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve, oh, ve. Away from us, right? And then I'll have them do it with different sized fruits. So maybe we'll move down and, and we'll do like a clementine. And then we'll do like a grape. And then a blueberry, right? Pa, 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 pa. Ve, 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 ve. And then maybe we'll do a cantaloupe or a watermelon, right? And we'll 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 get we'll get bigger. And then once we get up into the part where we're starting to get people up into the upper passagios and stuff like E's and and F's, I'll, I'll generally say fruit salad, right? Just to choose your own fruit now. <laughs> Whatever you need to do to feel comfortable in this area singing. And it's just a fun way to play with weight. Or you can use balls. I'll have them start with baseballs and then we'll go down to like ping pong balls or like marbles or styrofoam marbles versus glass marbles. Or then we'll go up to like shot puts and bowling balls and, you know, medicine balls and things. And uh, it's just a fun way to put They can sing with a lot of weight or they can sing very lightly. And then we can apply that to to repertoire, you know, if we're doing uh, something from the Messiah, you know, for unto us a child is born. Oh, can you just juggle glass marbles there? For unto us a, for unto us a child is, right? And contrast that with juggling our like bowling balls or something like that. So that's an interesting way to play with yet another aspect of tone that you can still have a chiaroscuro sound but have a a very lightweight or a very heavy weight within the sound. 
You mentioned intonation. So I discovered that a lot of times when we have upward leaps, those can be, I don't think this comes as a surprise to anyone, right? Those can be places for intonation problems, right? So for instance, Star Spring a Banner, what so proudly we hail, what so proud, right? And, and I think that a lot of the reason for that is that singers try to carry the weight and the sort of mechanical production of that lower tone into the way they would produce the upper tone. But really, the larynx needs to make a shift there, and we need to allow it to make a shift to get into a slightly different way of producing tone when we make an upward leap. So most of my ideas just came, as much as I like to prepare and think about these things, most of these ideas just come to me like in the moment, you know, in a rehearsal. And so at one point, I was frustrated with my singers because they weren't making that leap. And I said, okay, it's like, it's like Mario. Okay, everyone knows Super Mario, right? And here's the question mark box. And right now you're all trying to get coins out of the box. What's so proud? What's so proud? Ba-ding, ba-ding, ba-ding. I said, would you imagine instead <laughs> that there's like a fire flower out of that box? And would you jump and get it and land on it from above, right? You're coming from below, but you got to jump over the top and get the fire flower. Everyone hold out your fist. That's the question mark box. Can you make your little walkie fingers? That's Mario. Now everyone do, what's so proud? And get the flower. Now get the coin. What's so proud? What's so proud? So now we use that Mario moment idea a lot in my choirs when we have those uh, ascending passaggio shifts that are causing intonation problems. I think I've heard Tim Stalter from University of Iowa, and I believe he stole this from someone else too, talk about going up the steps, but then dropping your luggage, right? Or I'll sometimes tell students that they're, we were using bowling balls before, so maybe they have bowling ball bags, one in each hand. What's so, and then drop those bags. What's so proud, right? And let your, let your larynx shift into that other position is literally what we're trying to do. And I find those images, again, they just, the singers sort of giggle a little as they do them or they smile and that humor brings down the guards and the inhibitions, but also it connects immediately and in a very memorable way with something that they're doing physiologically. And then I can just bring Mario back whenever I need. And, and it, it's a real quick fix for those kinds of problems. Yeah. And two of the things that I'm realizing, recognizing as we talk is your use of the kinesthetic and just how mm -hmm. important that is. And then also making the connections. Like these are all things, if you're doing a particular warm-up, these are all things that you can then take and then connect to specific spots in the repertoire in the middle of rehearsals. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the things that I really harp on with our music ed students is that a warm-up, you have to have a reason. Like a warm-up needs to have a purpose. I know that we call them warm-ups, and that we think we're just warming up our voices. But, you know, my choral rehearsals are in the afternoon. And really, most of my singers' voices, just from talking, moving around, are fairly warmed up by then. And it's more about reminding them and getting them re-centered within that, the proper technique, right? Re-centering and focusing on the breath and how we're using it. Re-centering and focusing on eliminating tension where we don't want it teaching concepts, which then can carry over into the repertoire. So I think that warm-up time is super, super valuable as a teaching time and as a tone-building time. And whenever I have my music ed students warm up choirs or do lead warm-ups, they have to tell me what the purpose of each warm-up is, right? What is it that you're trying to accomplish here? And that gives the warm-ups a real sense of purpose and focus. And I think it changes 
I don't know, it just changes how the rehearsal works and how, how the teaching and how the tone building happens throughout the course of the year. I love it. Terrific. Yeah. Well, I love the sense of humor and the creativity that you bring to all of this, Zach. So, and I know my audience is going to love that as well. So thanks so much for hanging out with Thank me you, today. Beth. And before I let you go, um, tell people where they can find you online. Is there a place where they can find you? And, and- I don't have a website. So uh, <laughs> the, the best thing, if anyone has any questions or just wants access to the resources, I'm happy to distribute copies of my handout is they can just email me at Durlam, D-U-R-L-A-M at uwm.edu. Well, that's it for my conversation with Zach. What a fun conversation. And he is just one of the smartest people that I know. And he is so creative and engaging in how he is presenting these concepts and these ideas to the singers that he works with. And singers, they really just enjoy uh, being in rehearsal with him because everything is just really a lot of fun and engaging. At the same time, they're learning so so much about their own voices and learning about how the voice works and really coming to realize that they're capable of really a lot more than what they think as far as the different palette that they are uh, working from as far as their singing tone. So that is it for the Game of Tones. Thank you so much to Zach for sitting down with me and sharing uh, his wonderful expertise. Now, if you are looking for a way to teach some of these basic concepts of vocal technique to your singers, while at the same time you want to assess their vocal development and document their progress, then my Vocal Technique 101 teaching unit is just what you need. This classroom resource consists of eight video lessons in which I discuss some of the basic concepts of vocal technique. And then each lesson includes a Google form quiz that will guide your singers through the lesson. It's an easy assessment piece and even better, it grades itself. As well as there are some additional ideas that you can use to assess the vocal development of your singers. For instance, there are are things that they can sing and make recordings of and almost like creating a a vocal portfolio so they can add some of these recordings to their own portfolio and you can use that to document their progress over a long period of time. You can use these lessons in rehearsal, use them as homework for your singers, or it's also a great resource to use when you need to have a substitute teacher in your choral rehearsal. For more information, head over to choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash shop. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode, my friends. I hope this episode has inspired you and motivated you to go play your own version of the Game of Tones with your singers. Until next time, keep being awesome. Are you looking for resources that will save you time and frustration? Want to dive deeper into topics related to your teaching? Then check out the Choir Director Corner Community Membership over at choirdirectorcorner.com forward slash membership. Hey.